Well, Matthew 6. You may have read the story yesterday. There was an individual boarding a commercial plane, I believe it was, in Bradley International Airport in Connecticut. And they had some unusual luggage carrying on with them. A 70-pound pot-bellied pig. This individual proceeded onto the plane. Passengers reported thinking it was a duffel bag at first. Of course, it was not. But the pig came with this individual because it served as an emotional support animal. An emotional support animal. A true story. Uh, airlines typically allow animals in flight as an emotional support. This is news to me. Uh, but the idea that this pig would serve as a, a comfort to help with the anxiety and worry and fears and whatnot. However, uh, it became a problem when before the plane took off, the pig began to squeal and then uh, use the restroom in the aisle amidst all the other passengers on a Thanksgiving weekend. You can imagine the stench that rose and just sort of sat in the plane. So at that point, the individual and the pig were escorted off the plane, and they were not allowed to fly. Now, a pot-bellied pig uh, might be one way to address worry, fear, anxiety. We might chuckle at that, but perhaps in our less noble moments or in our most of our moments, we turn to other things that would be a proverbial pot-bellied pig for comfort in our worries and so on. But as we've been studying through the book of Matthew 6, Christ proposes a far better solution uh, to eradicate anxiety, fear, and worry because the Bible is sufficient to address all things pertaining to life and godliness. And God put this very helpful instruction into the book of Matthew as a gift to you and as a gift to the world for the issue of worry. Christ is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount And he assumes that when he addresses this particular topic on worry, that the word of God is sufficient enough means to begin putting worry to death. And now Christ, of course, he's not treating the Bible as a, like a bottle of spiritual Advil or ibuprofen. You just pop a passage, read a verse and abracadabra, it's gone. It's not that simple. But Christ is slaying our anxiety as we are making our way through this passage and And the way he is doing that is turning our eyes to a great God, a loving God, a trustworthy, kind, and patient, a sovereign God, the true God. Many of us ask the question about addressing our worry this way. We ask, well, what do I need to do? Because as we've been seeing in the last few weeks, I mean, there are a million and one different therapies out there. What do I need to do? But Christ, in effect, is saying that we need to ask a far different question than that. Not what do I need to do, but who do I need to know? Who do I need to know? That is the issue. And keep getting to know every day. And it is the the God and the Father of all believers who cares and is absolutely committed to the greatest good of all his children by faith in Christ. So with that, follow along with me. As I read, I'm going to read the whole chunk of uh, Scripture again, verse 25 to 34 from Matthew 6, just to remind us of our context here. God's Word says, 
verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe observe how the, the lilies in the field, they grow, they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Yet I say to you, excuse me, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all, all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, we are in the middle, in the thick of the Sermon on the Mount, this one sermon, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, We've been in it for over a year now, studying this uh, Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular section, Jesus turns to worry, and he started it out in a very interesting way, really the porch to verse 25 to 34, of course, is verse 19 to 24, in which Christ, uh, he boils all of life down to serving one of two masters, either we will serve God or we will serve self, ultimately. And that's the necessary preliminary teaching to understand worry because, as we're seeing and he's been illustrating here, serving self propagates worry, serving God propagates peace. And in saying that in verse 19 to 24, we really see that Christ makes absolute demands uh, on all who would follow him. But then in verse 25 to 34, continuing on that, uh, Christ makes an absolute declaration regarding the care for all who follow him, the care of the Father for all who follow him. And so worry is the issue. Worry is as common as people. Christ knows that. And he's addressing it from many angles, adding much helpful insight, showing us that really the cure to anxiety is is less about our circumstances and more about uh, trusting our God. You cannot run from anxiety any more than you can run run from yourself. To run from anxiety, you have to run to God. That's the way it happens here. And you'll notice something fascinating about God's approach to worry in this text. He's not saying things like, well, sorry, you know, you're just, that's the way you are. You know, you have OCD, you have social anxiety disorder, you have GAD, you're just born with this and you're never going to be able to deal with it. That is not how Christ is addressing it. No, his counsel assumes correctly that his power through his word is sufficient Sufficient to effectively eradicate this in our lives. So with that then, the main idea of the study we're seeing the past two weeks, main idea, bird's eye view of verse 25 to 34, in light of how loving, competent, aware, and sovereign our Father God is. No, worry is anchored in the, in, in the character of God first, in light of who he is, whose children we, we become through Christ, through faith in Christ. We can really give ourselves fully to the joy of God's priorities and thereby live worry-free. Worry-free. 
You can bank on that. You can sell the farm on that one, on that truth, as we're seeing in the text. So our outline is, is uh, pretty rich because there are so many wonderful principles in this text we're seeing. I, I think there's going to end up being 12 or 13, but we'll see next week when we finish, Lord willing. Uh, principles, our outline is principles which lay our worry to rest. Do you need to have a funeral to your worry? Would you like to have a funeral to your anxiety? We all would. There are many principles to help us do so in this text. We're taking a detailed look at these reasons. I would encourage us, if you've been with us, really to take time to apply these throughout the week, to go through, to revisit these principles in the text, pray through them, and really renew your mind and just sort of be washing your, your, your soul in these and, and these principles in this text here. So by way of review, briefly, number one, we saw this if you weren't with us and you can get the messages online. First is the history principle that we can be rid of worry by recalling the historical context into which Jesus spoke here. When he says in verse 25, for this reason, do not be worried. Again, he is speaking to a first century uh, audience. They are scratch plow farmers. They are not wondering uh, what they would eat, but if they would eat, they are not wondering, well, what should I wear in my wardrobe today? But if I have anything in my wardrobe, they are subjected to a a very oppressive Roman government, high taxes. And so for Jesus to say, hey, don't worry to them, it's a big deal. But his principles and his power are sufficient for them. They will be for you and I too, the history principle. Number two, we saw the morality principle. We can be rid of worry. When Jesus says, do not worry, he makes it a moral issue. Meaning worry is sin. So we can be rid of worry since it's sin against God and God cleanses us from sin. God came to cleanse us from sin. So when we, when we accurately identify and confess it to God for what it is, that it is sin for me to worry God. And then God says, yes, forgiven and I'm going to cleanse you. Oh, we experience so much transformation out of worry. And we humble ourselves in that way. Second, third, the quantity principle. The quantity principle in verse 25. He says, look, is not life more than food and clothing? Because when we worry about food and clothing, it shows that the, uh, the, the, really the, our life consists only of that thing that we worry about. But he's saying, man, it's so much more than that. That's just a little part of your life. Fourth, we saw the competency principle. God is competent to care for his creation without it having to worry. And he uses a couple illustrations, things like birds and flowers, as we read. He said, look, the the birds, they do well. And we saw that scientists estimate the bird population of the earth is between two and 400 billion. Two and 400 billion birds. God does a good job taking care of them. And there there are no real mass bird uh, grocery stores that human beings create for those two to 400 billion. No, God feeds them. And so God will take care of you, is the idea. Fifth, the costly principle we saw. Verse 26, when, when, when Christ says, You're, aren't you worth so much more than birds? And God takes care of them. The costly, meaning you are much more valuable to God than birds and flowers that God cares for. Therefore, if he takes care of them, he's going to take care of you and meet your needs as he defines needs. The costly principle. Six, the futility principle we saw as well. In verse 27, when Christ asks a somewhat uh, humorous rhetorical question, he says, hey, who of you can add to your life by worrying? Worry accomplishes nothing. 
He says, tell me, how, how many days and years have you added to your life by worrying? How much of your human responsibility, Christ says, have you accomplished? How much stuff have you got done through worrying? None. None. It's futile. The stuff God, God calls us to do, to, to love him, to love others, to pray, to work hard. Worry does nothing to help get any of those things done. It's a terrible task accomplisher. And neither does worry alter God's sovereignty. Therefore, it's futile, we saw. Sixth, seventh, and we ended here last week, the beauty principle, where Christ says, look at the flowers. They're, they're gorgeous, aren't they? They're beautiful. And we can take a microscope and confirm that down to the most microscopic level, but God beautifies his creation so we can trust. He cares about us. The argument there that Christ makes, look, if God not only... He, he not only makes flowers and sees that they have the dirt, air, the water that they need to, to survive, and he takes such meticulous care to beautify them. What does that say about his ability to care for you being, again, much more valuable than flowers? Why are you worried? He clothes you with your physical needs by faith and your spiritual needs, as we sing, by faith. Well, all that then, number eight. New material, here we go. The eternity principle. The eighth principle to funeral our worry is the eternity principle. God provides for things which exist briefly. Thus, he'll do so for his children who exist eternally. Look at verse 30 with me. Christ says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So the illustration last week of the grass and the, the flowers is furthered. Besides the beauty of it, God wants us to see something else. Notice back in the text, it is alive today and it is thrown in the furnace tomorrow. Do you see that there in the text? Flowers are brief in their existence. The beauty of flowers really is only surpassed by their brevity. One day they might cloak a majestic hillside and the next day they could be withered up and dead and used for compost or to throw be thrown into a furnace that word there for furnace referred to the first century ovens they use where they would pick up anything they could find again it shows how poor they were they would pick old dead grass flowers anything to to heat their their ovens but really the point is the brevity of flowers the brevity and and since uh, God so meticulously cares for something that is that brief. What does that say about his children? What does it say? Of course, there are two assumptions that Christ makes. God values his children far more than flowers, of course. He sent his son to die for, for us, for his children, not flowers. To give eternal life to, to us, not flowers. And then second, God cares for a flower which exists for a few days. Thus, he will certainly do so for his children who exist for all eternity. And so much more will he clothe you. And as Jesus thinks about our provision here, the stuff we need, notice his time scale. Do you, do you see the time scale underneath here that he's, th that he's thinking? It's not just from physical birth to physical death. Now, that's like a blip compared to the whole time scale that he uses here. No, he's, talk, he, he's thinking about heaven as well, eternity. Because heaven is the true, the permanent home for all who believe in Christ. And so Christ takes heaven into account when he thinks about God providing here in the eternity principle. 
He'll care for individuals. Their time on earth, he'll give you the food, the stuff you need for as long as he needs you to be here. For some of us, it's shorter time we have that stuff that we need. For some of us, it's longer. But for all of us, heaven is eternal. And you'll have everything you need there. Don't worry, Christ would say. Read Revelation 21. Unending joy, provision. So in effect, Jesus is saying then, look, don't fret over clothes and over checkbooks and cars and cash. Life is, your life is not only more than that, but it is far longer than the length of flowers. Flowers don't go to heaven with Christ, you will. And when you get to heaven, all the wrongs will be made right. Problems of the world forever fixed. He says, Christ is exhorting us to have a realistic view of time. It is so myopic when we just look at life from physical birth to physical death and worry about that. He's like, you're looking at one, one trillionth, not more than that, less than that of the whole thing here. Have, a, have an accurate view of time. We put worry to death by the eternity principle. Number eight. Number nine then. The reality principle. The reality principle. Put worry to death, number nine, with the reality principle. Worry is, namely, worry is the consequence of believing non-truth. Worry happens because we embrace false things. Verse 30. Notice, look back at verse 30 with me. After giving these many reasons we don't need to worry, Jesus interjects with a, a firm sort of calling us out. He adds this necessary reproof, doesn't he? Look there, it says, you of little faith, exclamation point. You of little faith, and this applies to all of us when we worry. Because every time we worry, just hear that. Hear Jesus saying, you of little faith. And there is one word in the Greek, in the original text here, that is translated little faith. It's a compound word, and in Greek, it means small trust. Or tiny belief is the idea of the word. So then Jesus has really shed light on another angle of worry here. Worry is to have tiny trust. Sometimes we esteem ourselves, oh, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time and I got good faith. Well, have you worried recently? Jesus would say, small trust. Small trust. Worry is to have Small belief in God and his word, anxiety and related fear is really a tiny or a fractional belief of what is true. We need to enlarge our minds in that sense. Also notice that this small trust, our little faith fueling our worry, so it doesn't come from thin air. It doesn't come from thin air. It's the result of failure, a failure to actively think on what is true and actively marinate our minds in what is true when we worry. Have you worried lately? What error might you have been believing? So th- those moments of our little faith are moments of little logic, little reasoning. Worry is the consequence of little faith, which is the consequence of not believing truth. Often we hear people say in these days, oh, you have faith, that's great. Oh, you're a person of faith, that's so noble. That's great. But God ascribes no virtue to that. So just being a person of abstract faith. Why? Because our faith could be based on something that is not true. 
Consider, for example, the morning of Sunday, June 18th, 1815. The Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon, who at the time was the emperor of the French army, he was reported that morning to have a boastful confidence that he would go and slaughter the Seventh Coalition. That didn't happen, though, did it? Napoleon had much faith that morning, faith in himself, faith in his army and his battlements, but it was faith upon error, all things considered, hence the defeat. And so the kind of faith Christ is talking about here is a faith based on reason, fact, truth. Several years ago, I attended a debate between a, a guy, who, uh, this agnostic who rejected Christ and a Christian. And, and the topic was, well, can we trust the Bible, this book? And the agnostic displayed an unfortunate but all too popular ignorance really by this age-old and erroneous argument, namely, well, we can't trust the Bible. It's, it's, it's been through so many translations and we don't have the, you know, the old uh, uh, manuscripts. We don't know what it said. Of course, that's totally false. That was something I believed uh, before I came to Christ until I studied. It was quite the opposite. We have things like New Testament texts dating back to the second century in Greek that if you know Greek, you can just read it. I've seen it in the British Library among thousands of others dating back way back. But, but the, the Christian individual in the debate, the debate was describing the amazing amount of manuscripts we have, and I'll never forget, I'll never forget it. The agnostic said this. He, he responded, and he had nowhere to go. And he said this, you don't need reasons to believe the Bible because it's just all about faith. Faith doesn't need a reason, he said. It's just faith. That's a terribly wrong idea. Faith, Christian faith. The Christian faith is based on truth and reason. And we would never use that logic, for example, when we drive our cars. Imagine you driving your car. Oh, there's no real rhyme or reason to my brakes, uh, but I can stop my car. It's just faith. No way. We exercise a reasonable faith, a faith based on reality, We push the brake, the car stops, and the car stops because it's a reasonable faith. It's a faith based on uh, the logic of I push the pedal, the brake fluid compresses, which moves the brake pads. The result is the car slows down. It is not dumb luck. It is not just faith, abstract. No, it is faith based on truth, on reason. And so it is, and far more with the Christian faith, believing in Christ and surrendering to him, for forgiveness and trusting in God, it is all a faith or a trust that is based entirely on reason, entirely on truth, logic, historical fact, verifiable facts with witnesses, undeniable, absolute truth, for example. Which, by the way, is also why the rejection of Christ and refusing to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior is fundamentally an unreasonable human act an irrational act rooted in flawed logic. It's, it's wrong thinking and intellectual as well as moral error of the greatest kind. And so similarly, this is the case with worry here that Christ is, is, is illustrating. Christ, really the ultimate logician and thinker here, he gives easy to understand reasons 
and logic as fuel for our trust and our peace and our well-being, doesn't he? Oh, they're weapons for our anxiety. Again, it demonstrates that worry and anxiety are not rooted in physiological problems. Please hear this. They are not rooted in physiological problems, but in intellectual and spiritual issues. Worry is. And so Christ illustrates how unreasonable and illogical it is to worry. How so? Based on everything he said from verse 25 to 30 and will continue to do. He's saying it makes no sense. Worry is illogical. It's, it's an irrational act. For example, to suppose that God can handle the care of a flower and, and as we saw last week, the 400,000 different kinds of flowers and 400 billion birds, that God can do that, but he can't take care of you? That is illogical. You're irrational. We're anxious. Worrying also, as we saw in verse 27, when we worry, we in effect believe that we can add time to our life and that worry is an effective way to get stuff done. That's an irrational act, thought. It makes zero sense. It's unreasonable. Our anxiety also says that Christ's words were enough for impoverished people of the first century, but not enough for me now. Again, that is irrational. Irrational. And there will be many more reasons that the Father knows. We'll see next week in the intimacy principle that, well, he knows, but I don't think he can. That's irrational. Finally, by worrying, we we disobey our good and perfect God who does care. Also an unreasonable act. Sin itself being an irrational act. And so on the one hand, we trust God. Uh, we, We trust God to handle our soul for all eternity. But we worry, I don't know about my body here and stuff for a few years. I don't know he can do that and we trust god can handle taking our dead body and raising it to eternal life into heaven forever but we're anxious about him being able to handle our living body here for a couple of years and our kids and stuff and the bills oh that's irrationality jesus says you have little faith bad logic friend god wants us to equip our minds to be good thinkers doesn't he Worry, therefore, is a failure to think on truth and apply truth. It is a willful breakdown of logic. And this is important to realize because, again, it's not, worry is not a physiological disease. It is a moment or a lifelong habit of meditating on and marinating our mind on and believing things about God which are not true. Worry comes from believing bad doctrine. Which is why Christ and Paul and others are so adamant that we believe and espouse good doctrine. Because he, among other things, doesn't want us to worry. He wants us to have peace. That's why doctrine is so important. Consider another instance where Christ called, uh, rebuked people for little faith. I'll put it up here very quickly just to further illustrate the idea. Matthew 8, they're in a storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. This is in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was asleep. <laughs> See how much peace he had, how tired he was in his humanity. And they came to him and woke him saying, well, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of tiny trust, little faith? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea and it became perfectly calm. Now, why did he reprove his disciples for little faith there? Because it was a moment of irrationality, of irresponsible thought and thinking. Namely, they had seen Jesus perform many incredible miracles, raising paralyzed people, healing the sick, and so on. Therefore, it was unreasonable for them 
to fear that he could not take care of them in a little Galilean sea storm. They believed a wrong doctrine, hence little faith. So conquering worry then by God's grace in our lives begins with actively saturating our minds with truth, hearing God's word, thinking on God's word. Strong faith is the result of strong doctrine. One of the great benefits then is we don't worry. So the reality principle, worry is the consequence of believing non-truth. Number nine. Number ten. The family principle. The family principle, number 10. Worry only makes sense if God is not your father. If, in other words, you have not believed in Christ so as to enter into the family of God, worry only makes sense if God is not your father, verse 31 and 32. Go ahead and look with uh, with me at verse 31. Verse 31. Do not worry then, saying... What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Do not worry then. This command, do not worry, it's different than the one in verse 25 that we saw there in in the original language. It's more of an urgent call to never worry, he says. It's the idea of the original Never worry again because of the progress we've made through all these logical reasons. The command is stronger now. But as if Christ has not already given us enough care through his words here, he'll just add to them and continue to add to them. Look at verse 32. Don't worry about all the things in verse 31. Why? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. How does this bury bury worry? How does this happen? Because the family principle. This is really, again, an expansion of the idea of God's care for birds and flowers. Again, recall there that Christ argues for God's competency to care for them, to beautify them, and so on. But there is one critical difference between believers and Gentiles and flowers and whales and birds and everything else. It is this. They do not have God as their father, like you do if you know Christ. They don't have that. If you've trusted in Christ for forgiveness, dear believer, this one truth alone is enough to slay worry. We could just talk about this one for all eternity. The Gentiles seek all these things. Let's let's expand this. Let's flesh it out a little bit. So the command assumes something about uh, inherent to Gentiles such such that they would be really consumed with seeking all these things, things of the earth. First, the word Gentile here, in this case, it's a theological term for those who are not yet children of God, who have not come to God and confessed that they are sinful and they need his forgiveness and ask for his mercy and so have been reconciled to him and then made a part of this family. They're outside the family. As such, really then, it is the worst possible, worst possible place condition for a human being because every person whether we realize it or not there are two categories that god makes very clear that there are two categories of humanity we are either a child of god or an enemy of god we enter the world enemies of god by nature until we come to god for reconciliation and we continue as enemies 
both by choice and by nature. Scripture is so clear about that. A couple scriptures to describe what every child of God was. Before, I'll put a few up here. Uh, Romans, do we have before that maybe? Romans, no. Keep going back, no. (laughs) Maybe up under point number 10, that's okay. Uh, Turn to Romans 5, this is such an important one. Romans 5 is uh, just a few books forward. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, first Acts, Romans. And after that, we're going to turn to Ephesians 2. Apologize, I don't have those up here. But Romans 5, verse 10. Notice what it says there. Again, this is describing what every believer was before, by God's grace alone, not because they're better than anybody. Notice it says, if while we were enemies, do you see that? We were enemies. Paul is talking to believers. We were enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So this is, I mean, this is not friend language here. This is the state of every human being into which we enter the world. And so there's nothing more dark than this, tragic than our natural willful state of being an enemy of God. Because of all, enemy, of all individuals whose enemy we might be, the, God is the worst, our creator, our loving Lord. And so this is our great human problem and the one which Christ came to address that we celebrate at Christmas that we are not born into God's family just by virtue of existing. We're not at peace with God. So becoming a Christian is not really, for example, you know, just deciding that I'll have a new spiritual preference, like choosing a new political party. It's, it's not a way of life that I choose, well, because maybe my parents have or I was born into it, or many of you, your parents are not believers, And in many religions, you're born into it because of your family, but that is not the case with God because we're born enemies of God. And so becoming a Christian is a complete transfer of of nature, of being, of status before God, from enemy to child. It is an absolute change in that sense. The most important change, hence 2,000 years of history of God's people scattering across the earth, giving their lives to tell people about the good news of Christ crucified. Now, here's how Christ crucified comes into this. He is Christ crucified, you might say, is really the adoption price, the transfer fund to make an individual an enemy of God to child of God. And it's, 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 it's not like, a, well, I become an enemy and then we're neutral and then God kind of likes me. No, it is, it is from enemy to child. That's how good God is and how powerful the cross is. Jesus is the answer to that problem. This is why Christmas exists. Christ always for eternity. He's the, been the one true perfect son of God and he came to earth and he did so for one reason. He took a body so that he could give it. To give it for our sins. Though he was God, he was the son worthy of worship. He would die in the place of all of those who would believe who were unworthy to be called God's family and God's children. If you think of war, for example, and every truce there is in war or peace or reconciliation, there are costly terms uh, to present the enemy at peace with the offended and superior uh, party. And so it is, and infinitely more so with God, where he is a superior party, we are the offending party by nature and will, and God in his extravagant love and his extravagant compassion, 
He sent and commissioned his one sinless son to pay the price for many sinful sons and daughters who would believe in Christ. It is such a wonderful deal that God offers us that he was willing to make with you. He dies because of us. We live because of him by faith. He is punished on the cross because of our sins. We are welcomed into our family despite our sin. Christ did all the work to make us a welcomed child of God. Though we are by nature God's offensive enemy. Offensive enemy. Christ was always the son yet judged for our sin. Beware of teachings you see out there these days in the name of Christ at all. You know, you're not an enemy of God if you're not a Christian yet. God, you're, you're good. You're good in God's sight. Just, just accept Christ like you're going to accept your invite to your Christmas party with your business. Just, just kind of that. That is false. That is false teaching. Let it be known. We are enemies. We enter the world enemies of God. Christ was judged for our sin, though. We, uh, we were never children of God, yet by faith we get forgiven and become children of God. Which are you, by the way? Which are you? Which category might you be in? We become his children, not by moralizing ourselves gradually our way up into God's family. We could never do such a thing. We need an exchange his righteousness, our sin. Now it is looking to Christ, believing on Christ, throwing ourselves on Christ by faith. He is alone the acceptance, our acceptance into God's family. Oh, and so there is instant reconciliation again. This is instant. A couple passages to illustrate that. Romans 9. Romans 9 here, it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you're not my people. Again, enemies, you're not my people that they shall be called sons of the living God. Amen. In Galatians 3, for you are sons of God, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see how simple that is there? Some of you need to become children of God tonight. Notice, faith in Christ Jesus, not works. So becoming a Christian isn't really deciding to check a new box on the census as it comes around each year, but a radical change of being. Total change. Trusting in God's mercy for reconciliation. And then we are, a fascinating thing, thing happens that we sing about. We are born into God's family. Not physically, and we are never again as enemies. But we sing, born to give them second birth. You remember that lyric? The first birth is our physical birth into the world. The second birth is a spiritual miraculous reality where we make peace with God and we come to God and say, God, I've been, my, I've been your enemy. I've sinned against you. I am unworthy to be in your family. Oh God, I should be treated like an enemy. But please, I believe in Christ. I trust Christ. Would you forgive me? And we are then, Christ comes and he is born to give us that second birth and we are sons of God. We're in his family forever. It's the most wonderful truth in the universe. I pray to God that you're a child of God tonight that you would become one by faith in Christ. We hear this truth 
in stores and from the radio this time of year as well in another lyric where we sang peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. Reconciliation is a term of making peace for those who are not enemies they were. I mean, that, that song plays in stores all the time. It blows my mind. Become a child of God then, friend, tonight if you're not. Become a child of God. Throw yourself on Christ. Jesus said this in John 6, 40. He said, look, for this is the will of my Father. What is your Father? What's your Father's will, Jesus? That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise them up on the last day. I like that. Believe on him tonight, friend, if you don't know him. Believe in him. Believe in him. He loves you. What a great time of year to make peace with God, isn't it, at Christmas time? What a great time of year. Oh, to know the true meaning of Christmas. God and sinners reconciled. God offers to become your heavenly father. The adoption price and the papers are the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The receipt of your purchase is the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. The guarantee down is the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell you. God will reject none who come to him through Christ. None. And furthermore, he will disown none who have come to him through Christ. Not because we are so moral, but because the death and the life and the resurrection of Christ is so final. That's why. He really is that good. You've heard the famous atheist who said Christianity couldn't be true because that message of instantaneously forgiveness of sin, going to heaven just by simple faith, that's too outrageous, love. That's too outrageous. Oh, it is outrageous, but it is true. It is the only message by which we are reconciled to God. Don't reject this offer, friend. Oh, let your, not, let, let your heart not grow cold and remain stagnant and apathetic towards this especially this time of year. Today is the day of salvation. He's that good. And so when we become God's children, Jesus assumes we will be different, a different people, not Gentiles anymore. Because knowing God's love, among other things, will move us away from anxiety. Again, thinking on this this truth. Gentiles don't have God as their father yet. We must love them and share the good news. But notice, Christ says, look back at verse 32. They, they eagerly seek all these things. Look at that phrase there. They eagerly seek all these things, which evidences they don't know God. They eagerly seek. It's one word in the Greek. It's a consuming seeking, is what that word means. In ancient times, the word could refer to an external going after something. It was the same Greek word used in Acts 12. Remember when Peter gets miraculously let out of prison? And the prison guards are eagerly seeking, where is he? How did that happen? But it also means an internal seeking. A a, a wishing for something else in my mind. A desire. Outwardly, I may not be running around after everything. But inwardly, the mind, the thoughts, they are restless. They're occupied. They're on the hunt. After what? Notice the text. All these things. What are all these things? The things that the Gentiles seek after, but more specifically, all the treasures of the earth. That's what they are. The treasures of the earth. 
earthly endeavors, earthly things, earthly treasures, things that we can't take to heaven, things that will have no value in heaven, endeavors that really aren't for God's glory. They occupy the seeking of Gentiles, stuff, earthly stuff. That's the dominating devotion and security of an unbeliever. So Christ sheds again more light on worry here. Fascinating how much he's unearthed here. Worry then is linked to a restlessness, a restless mindset of seeking earth stuff. Why would it do that? Because worry is often a greedy mindset. We saw that two weeks ago. Worry is usually fueled by greed. Greed does not mean owning a lot of stuff, but it means, recall, an unthankful heart, a heart that is discontent, that seeks after more. It's a, it's a restlessness. It is fidgety. This is what he's talking about here. A fidgety heart, a, a squirmy soul. A discontent life where I need the next thing. I need the next place. I need the next thrill. Or the next thing to be happy. So this could look like a million different things. It could look like the Jackson Hole lifestyle. It could look like a family. I pile things on my family. More and more activities I pile and bury my kids in. Nothing wrong with activities. But this fidgety heart. I need more to be content. And it pulls us away from Christ. It's the opposite. Hear this, please. It is the opposite of the unglamorous thorn and thistle life between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20, the normalcy of life, where I need to just stay faithful, stay consistent, put my hand on the plow. Jesus calls life plowing. Some of you want life to be called prancing on unicorns with fireworks. It's not that. It's plowing and first century plowing more accurately. This eagerly seeking, it can't handle that. It's just fidgety. Seeking after the next thing. I can't, I can't just settle into the really, the, the, the mostly boringness and unthrillingness of life here and now. Seeking after. Often on the surface, you know, the Jackson Hole lifestyle, this can look like, oh wow, that person's a go-getter, they're a go-getter. You know, they, 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 they get after it. They're so active. They're involved in so many things. When in reality, not always, but often it's not something to be praised but pitied because they're restless, they're unfulfilled, they're fidgety, worrying, and worst of all, is the worst thing about that is not that they're unhappy, but that they're unreconciled to God. That's the worst thing about it. Often shows... Yeah, this, this eagerly seeking, it's the idea that I need the next proverbial amusement park ride to keep me going quick. Someone put another quarter, another thousands into the ride, push the button again, because what would I do with my life if the ride stopped? What would I do? I, I would have to face reality. I'd have to face truth. I would have to face my emptiness. I would have, fa- have to face my need for Christ. So what do I do? Numb myself, dump more money into the proverbial roller coaster here, and I this thing I want to do, the next place, the next thing, the next awesomeness I want to achieve because I'm still an enemy of my creator and I can't stand deep down, though I know it, to face it. And so I'll avoid it and I'll just numb it. We need to step off the amusement park. Ride. Throw ourselves on Christ and tell him we can't. I'm a wretched unbeliever who 
just I have to be involved in all these other things because I can't just sit and think about my soul and Christ and how life is really thorns and thistles and sorrow and I need Christ and I need Christ. I need to just throw myself on him and tell him I cannot, Lord. I can't. Oh, God, help me. I can't. Oh, what a savior he is for any of you who would do that, whether you're a believer or not. Tell him you can't do it anymore. Tell a father whose care you cannot lose, whose competency you cannot jeopardize, whose love you cannot threaten. Tell him. Tell him about it. Tell him how you can't. Tell him how you're enslaved to the amusement park lifestyle. Oh, he's a great savior. Tell him. Matthew 11, a couple words Jesus has here for us. Come to me then. Come to me. Off the amusement park. Your enslavement to all your activities that aren't inherently bad in themselves, but it's your heart that is desperately idolatrous. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle, humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Your souls. And then Romans 8.32. He, speaking of the Father, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's a statement of competent care that gives the soul rest, isn't it? Rest. Believe in Christ. Trust him. Now through Christ we can rest. We have a father who already gave what we needed most to illustrate something very powerful to us. Now, does, does having God as Father mean that every Christian is going to be fed with a silver spoon and go about in a silver chariot? No, it means something far better than that. It means something far better than having things that will merely end up in junkyards. It means having forgiveness, eternal life, peace, reconciliation to God, justification, righteousness, a mind for truth. Oh, worry. We don't need to worry speaks a false message about her father. Imagine a child who's, who's lived his entire life up to 10 years of age in an orphanage. In this orphanage, the building was dilapidated. The cupboards and the refrigerators were bare. The caretaker was a tyrannical master. And so this orphan, this orphan operated under the misery of this person in place. And so naturally and consequently every morning, imagine this orphan his mind raced and was set on, okay, how will I solve this problem of empty cupboards, holes in the roof? Every day, this is what he had to do. He had to sneak out of this place and rummage through the back alleys to find something to stay fed and dry. And so this is what he did. His life was filled with worry naturally, but then one day it happens. One day a guy comes to the orphanage, pays a huge price to get this orphan because he's a foreigner, and takes him home to a palace, no holes in the roof, cupboards filled, stocked, all kinds of caretakers that love him. And one night, the former orphan, something fascinating happens. The former orphan is found bolting down the driveway about uh, seven in the evening. One of the caretakers sees him, runs after him and says, what's the matter? Where are you going? And the boy answers to the back alleys, of course. The caretaker says, why? Because that's where I've always found what I need. I'm restless. The alleys, he says, oh, child, no, there's no need. Why would you go to the alleys? Don't you know who your new father is? Have you not understood what he's like? 
He paid an enormous price to get you. His palace is stocked. His care is relentless. But the orphan answers, well, it got to be evening and I was hungry and we hadn't eaten yet. So I worried. And the caretaker says, a little patience, son. Dinner's coming in a bit. Don't worry. Look what this this father did to get you. A little patience. Rest. Learn something about this father. Recall who he is. He's the greatest individual in the land. Perhaps if you've been like me, you're like that orphan sometimes. We think we need to hit the old alleyways of the world, don't we? Those alleyways, they call out for you. The old life apart from God, but our father paid such a dear price. He's the owner of all things. You don't need to go to the old alleyways. Revisit them in your mind or visit them physically, whatever. Think on what's true. Arm your mind with truths about the Father. We might feel a little hungry, proverbially, or in reality. You might get a little restless. Trust, pray, wait. It's 7 o'clock, wait, pray. Calm. We're in the family. It's the family principle. Anxiety only makes sense if God isn't your father, if you're still an enemy of God in the orphanage of the world. Consider whose family you're in. Remember the price for your adoption. Just let that sink in. Just let it sink in. Father God, we thank you that you love us so much. That through Christ, there is nothing we can do to jeopardize, threaten, diminish your love. But oh Lord, we get restless. Those in our, even those of us in your family, we get restless. We want to go to the old back alleys, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to have a time scale like yours of eternity. Think on what is true, reality, and remember that we're in your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.